I'm a booger. I'm a booger booger. I'm a booger. I'm a booger 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 booger. Thank you for downloading this episode of I'm a Booker Booker, a novel podcast about books and the people who write them. An invisible enemy has turned our lives upside down. We now live in a world where a roll of toilet paper is more sought after than a first edition of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. Where Karen from the internet is an instant epidemiologist and has a meme to prove it. Where smoking dacha is legal and going to work will land you a prison sentence. We travel into the heart of the lockdown to bring you Amabuka Booker, the Quarantine Chronicles. Author's lockdown. T minus thirteen. Bondle Sene loves feisty girls who kick butt and break gender stereotypes. She also loves the rich tradition of African mythology, and she loves writing. These triple loves led the celebrated author and literacy advocate to pen the four-part adventure fantasy series, The Shadow Chasers. The Shadow Chasers are warriors who have protected their villages for hundreds of years. They are fighting against an army of shadows, monsters in a spirit realm who are trying to break into the real world and destroy it. It's a deliciously delightful horror series for tweens and even some of us adults who enjoy escaping into a magical adventure. I mean, who doesn't believe that deep down they have magical powers and their letter from Hogwarts will arrive any day now? Pontley's nail-biting, spine-tingling books, The Power of the Knife, Lake of Memories, Flame of Truth, and Night of the Red Moon have been translated into Isizulu as Abazingele, Betunzi. Welcome to Amabuka Buka Bontle. Can you read us an extract? Sure. Uh, I'm going to read you my favorite extract to read because it's from my first book, uh, Powers of the Knife. Here we go. Nam has no choice but to fight. The gang has her surrounded. She's all alone behind the tuck shop. School ended hours ago. The trouble girl gang are always picking on Nam. They pinch her when no one's looking or trip her on her way home. She pulls her fingers into a tight fist, getting ready to throw a punch if she has to. These trouble girls are so stupid, Nam thinks. But they're also pretty. And Nam does not think she is. Her lips are too fat and her nose is too big. But, like her dad says, looks aren't everything. Nam is smart and she can fight. Nam thinks that's much better than running around after stupid boys. She raises her fist to her chin. One girl leans forward and flicks Nam on the ear. Nam tries to swat her hand away, but she's too slow. Not so tough with no teachers here to see you, are you, Namti? Says a girl with long braids down her back. My name is Nam, she says, swallowing down any chance that she will cry in front of them. All the girls look at each other and laugh. Your name is Nom Tandazo. You can't be cool just by pretending to have a cool name says a girl wearing shoes but no socks. You're boring and you're ugly, says one of the one girls. One of the other girls spits into the dirt. Another girl giggles. That's it, thinks Nam. In a flash, she throws her fist into the ear of the girl with the braided hair. Nam punches her so hard that her hand hurts. The girl bends over, swearing and crying. Her friends all start shouting now. They are really mad. You should not have done that, Nam Tandazo, says Precious the prettiest of the trouble girls. Now, we have to teach you a lesson. Nam takes a few steps back, but the girls are coming closer and closer. Her back is about to touch the wall and she'll have nowhere left to run. 
One of the shorter girls pushes her left shoulder with both hands. Nam loses her balance. She falls flat on her bum in the red dirt. Precious, shouts a voice from in front of the tuck shop. Is that you? The trouble girls halt in their tracks and look at each other. Is that you, Zatembe? Precious calls back to the voice. Zatembe appears behind the tuck shop, facing the group of girls. It's me, he says with a small smile. What's going on here? This rich girl thinks she can say what she wants and do what she wants. We run the school. We say what's what, says Precious, folding her arms. Zatemba nods his head to show that he understands what they're saying. I see, he says, but you know who her dad is, right? All the trouble girls look at Precious. Of course they know who mom's dad is. Everybody knows Jabba. He's the big boss of the taxis in this township, part of the North Star Taxi Association. No one messes with Chubb. Precious nods, but doesn't say anything. Zatemba asks, you know, I live there, right? My aunt works in their house, so we live in the back room. Yeah, so, Precious says, what do I care? Come on, girls, do me a favor. Rajab was going to give me a hot clap if he finds out I saw his daughter getting beat up and I didn't do anything about it. Most of the girls now have their arms folded and are looking from Precious back to Zatemba, trying to decide what to do. And yuh, Zatimba continues, he would not be too happy with you either. He gives them a minute to think about that. None of them really knows what Brajabu would or would not do, but they've heard enough stories around the township to know you don't take chances with guys like him. Precious, I'm begging you, my friend, just let the school go, Zatimba says. Precious is silent for a minute. Okay, she says finally, but she'd better watch her mouth. Next time, maybe I won't be so nice. Zatemba shrugs and fakes a smile. He notices the other girls don't look too happy that he stopped the fight. These trouble girls are crazy, he thinks. They're always fighting, always getting into trouble. Zatemba offers a hand to Nam, who is still sitting on the ground. He's trying to help her up, but Zatemba hits his hand out of the way. She stands up by herself and dusts off the back of her school skirt. With one hand, she scoops up her school bag, but her eyes stay on the other girls. Zatemba tilts his head to the side to show Nam that they need to leave. They walk away with Nam in front. As soon as they get to the other side of the tuck shop, they hear the trouble girls talking. We can't just let her go like that, one girl says. People will think we're starting to get soft and start taking advantage, another one adds. Zatemba speeds up and takes the lead. He pulls Nam by the arm to make her get out of there faster. I don't care that her dad is Brajabu. We rule the school. We need to show her who makes the rules, says a third one. Precious must agree with them, because Zatemba says two of the girls running towards them. Each one of them has a big, sharp rock in one hand. Run! shouts Zatemba. Wonderful. And that's chapter one. Bontle, you wrote your first story when you were seven. Do you remember what it was about? Two baby rabbits who wanted a bedtime story from the mommy rabbit. And in embarrassing genders, gender stereotypes, uh, the girl rabbit wanted princesses and fairies and the boy rabbit wanted like war and terror. And they both keep interrupting until the story gets completely ridiculous. <laughs> I read a review of the Shadow Chasers series by eight-year-old Emily Fisser in the, in the City Press. She described the series as exciting and thrilling to the last page of the last book. You've read to many children in various countries. What have been their responses to the series? 
Well, I think it's it's changed over the course of of the books because it gets more magical and more fantastical as things go on. But I think some of the things that I always love is that there's always one kid who responds with great empathy, um, asking why Nam gets beaten up and why she's she's being bullied by other kids and, and why do they call each other stupid. So that's always very sweet. Um, and uh, I love going to schools in South Africa, especially those that are underprivileged, because a lot of those kids have never imagined themselves being able to meet an author. They don't really see authors as real people, which I certainly didn't when I was younger. And so being able to go to some of those schools, especially in sort of the south of Joburg, which is where I grew up and, and went to primary school, and have them go, oh, you went to Meadow Primary School? Oh my God, that's like down the road, right? That's, that's really fun. Part of the reason you wrote the series other than just the love of a great yarn, is because you recognize the importance of representation in children's fiction. Can you talk a little bit about that? I think growing up, I loved Roald Dahl. I loved uh, Harry Potter. And I, it never really occurred to me that so many of those stories took place in locations I had never seen and couldn't imagine, right? So when they were talking about snow, I kind of knew what that meant theoretically, but didn't really get it. And I remember thinking that there was no one in these books who was ever African and no one who was ever a brown person, really, um, except for here and there where there'd be someone thrown in for comedic relief. And as I grew older, it struck me as stranger and stranger that we don't have enough fiction for African kids to be able to see themselves in, right? Because it's very difficult to imagine getting a letter from Hogwarts and getting onto platform nine and three quarters when you don't have a train system that functions that way and that's completely not normal and what would you be doing with a chest and lots of things that just kind of don't make sense in an African context. Um, so I became very interested in the concept of being able to give children some view of Africa that was fantastical and interesting and exciting. Is there a fifth book in the series where the shadow chasers return to thwart the evil COVID-19 monsters? <laughs> Absolutely not. I think the internet will soon be flooded with lots of COVID-19 novels uh, yeah. and the shadow chasers don't need to enter that fray. <laughs> but I suppose you're now doing something even scarier than battling monsters. You're an executive at a bank in London. Do you still get the time to write? My day jobs have always been in corporate before I was an executive, I was a management consultant at a top management consulting firm and managed to write all four of my books while I was there. So um, I think there is privilege in having a stable job and a stable income because it allows you to have weekends free and it allows you to afford some of the luxuries like you know, being able to take Ubers and things, which which give you time right? and give you time back. And uh, certainly not having children and being single helps very much with that. You're in London now. What is life like for you in the time of the coronavirus in London? Well, it's interesting because I, um, I spent some time in Sierra Leone during Ebola on Ebola response and recovery. And so I was kind of used to the idea of a pandemic and what that would mean. So I went into a self-imposed lockdown quite early. So for me, I think this is like day 25 or 26. So I haven't really seen very much of what's happening in the rest of the city because I haven't been very, you know, haven't been 350 meters from my home in a very long time. Uh, and I've definitely also cut back on social media and trying to read that because that stuff 
actually will make you go mad. So I think the whole of London is now my apartment and I have no idea what else is going on. If you had to take one of your own characters with you into the lockdown, who would you take? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I want to say Nam because she's so feisty um, and so fun, but I think trying to get her to do kind of basic tasks would be kind of a nightmare. (laughs) So I'm going to pick Oyo, who is... um, uh, Orisha is like a Nigerian, West African kind of goddess of thunder, fire, uh, and everything that's kind of awesome. And she is uh, always up for a party, always up to cause some chaos, but ultimately uh, good-hearted and, and full of good intent. So I would, I would pick Oya. What has be, being in lockdown taught you about yourself? I think the, well, it's, it's weird because I guess this is not my first time in lockdown, but every time that I've, I've um, had to do this sort of thing um, for, a, for a pandemic, I think I'm always reminded of how bored I get without work. And work, I mean writing as well as my day job. Um, I think I'm the sort of person who thrives on constant stimulation, um, constantly working on things, imagining things, creating things. So uh, definitely I'm working a lot more just to beat the boredom of being locked down. Great. And now... The sound effects, Rorschach test. Okay, um, so that sort of seagulls, I guess, it reminds me of my, my first apartment in London, which was overlooking the river. And it was so wonderful to have that space and that kind of freedom of just being able to look out onto the water. South Africans actually are very lucky that we have a lot of open spaces still in our country and space to move. And London isn't always like that. So it was really nice to be able to wake up and hear the birds in the morning and look out in the water and have a bit of calm before London underground traffic. That is an interesting one. Um, I have always wanted to play a musical instrument. um, And uh, I didn't, my family didn't have a lot of money growing up. So um, extracurriculars that cost money weren't really an option. I always kind of felt um, sad that I never got the opportunity to do that. But definitely that weird violin sound, I think that's what I would make if I was playing an instrument. (laughs) Um, so uh, that um, pumping up uh, something sound um, kind of reminds me of uh, learning to ride my bicycle, which I was really afraid to do. And I think I only learned when I was kind of 10 or something because no one could make me do it before. And the only reason I did it was because my three-year-old sister was starting to ride her bicycle without training wheels. And it just was too embarrassing to continue like this. And I could not continue to dishonor my family by being the only one who couldn't ride a bike. I, uh, I spent a lot of time thinking about um, my evil characters and trying to make them not cliches. But certainly that's, that's the kind of evil laugh that every writer hopes that their evil characters can have, if that was an evil laugh. I believe in this time that that sound is probably more terrifying than any evil laugh of any villain uh, could possibly have uh, to anyone 
on the planet right now. Um, but my first thought is that guy should uh, immediately report to an emergency room. As soon as I heard that sound, I, yeah, that was the, <laughs> the most terrifying sound. Bunte, thank you so much. And I appreciate, I know your time is precious and I really do appreciate you chatting to us. Perfect. Yeah, I think this sort of thing, I think, is also what people need in this time. Just as some reprieve from endless bad news on social media, it's nice to remember that books matter and stories matter and um, authors still have a role to play in uh, helping us to alleviate boredom and isolation in the time of doubt. Absolutely. Take care. All right. Thanks. Cheers. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Amabuka Booker, The Quarantine Chronicles, live from the lockdown. You can subscribe to Amabuka Booker on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Amabuka Booker is produced by Jonathan Anser and Dan Dews and brought to you by Books Live in collaboration with Multimedia Live. Authors who would like to be featured, email jonathan.anser at gmail.com. Amabuka, 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 I'm a booker.